Well, good morning. Did you miss me? Bert got like two claps and and an amen. I was super excited to preach today. Now, thank you, thank you, thank you. I hope that picked up on the audio at home. At home, I hope you're glad I'm back. No, um, we, we've had a great, great um, time away in Colorado up in the mountains and just enjoyed um, temperatures slightly cooler than Texas. So it was a great, great week, and we are super excited to be back. Um, if you were here for the welcome, I'm kind of like jacked up a little bit this morning because I am excited to be back. Um, and so we're going to, I'll try to stop somewhere relatively on time. Um, and yeah, we get claps and applause. I, I see y'all just don't have the same love for Jesus that I do. <laughs> Truly spiritual people really enjoy long sermons. Amen. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even start my sermon. I don't even know where we're at now. Hey, um, we're, we're in a series that we started um, five or six weeks ago called History. And because I've been out for the last two weeks, I want to kind of catch you up real quick. And so if you haven't been here for any of it, we're going to take about three minutes, three minutes of my time. So like my sermons are usually about 15 minutes. So that gives you an idea. Um, just real quickly, um, and Dustin, I don't have a screen right here, um, if you don't mind, thank you. Um, yeah, it's been a while, it has. Um, so back in week one, we talked about what is the Bible and how did we get it? And basically we said this, that the Bible is 66 books written by 40 different authors on three different continents in three different languages over a period of about 1,500 years, all telling one single story, the story of God. And so the Bible is the retelling and remembering of the great acts of God in history to redeem and restore his good world. How God is at work to renew and redeem and restore all things. And we started this story, the history story, which is really his story, in a garden where God designs man and woman and he gives them this divine vocation to bear his image and represent him to this world. The hope being that all people in this world would know what God is like because of his people. And we learn very early in the story that they lose sight of that divine task. And what happens is they begin to blame and accuse God for holding out on them. And they find themselves on the outside of the garden looking in. And it seems like that's where the story should end. Where they have blown it. But we learn very early that God begins to pursue his people. 
Not just leaving them on the outside looking in, but he actually begins to go after them, trying to get them to see his goodness and his love. And very early in the story, this word appears for the very first time, and the Hebrew is hatat, and it means to fail or miss the goal. And the word is translated in our Bible as sin. And the very first time it appears, it's a story between Cain and Abel. As Cain is angry at his brother, and God comes to him, and he says, sin, hatat, to fail or to miss the, the goal, is crouching at your door, and its desire is to have you. And of course it does. And it seems like sin has spiraled out of control. And creation could not go any further from the goodness that God designed his creation for. Because ultimately sin does this. Sin breaks down a relationship with God. And sin breaks down relationship with others. At the end of the day, the result of sin is it breaks down relationship with God. And it breaks down relationship with one another. And so God keeps talking about restoring this good earth and bringing restoration and justice. But it brings up a really, really important question. Is God's justice retributive or restorative? Is the purpose of God's justice to get even, to get revenge? Or is the purpose reconciliation? Is it restoration? And sin continues to wreak havoc on God's good creation. Until the point that sin does the absolute worst that it could possibly do to someone. And hanging an innocent man on a cross. And in the moment when it seems like sin would take its revenge on the world, Jesus instead offers forgiveness. Saying, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And what we find is on the other side of forgiveness, a new world is formed, is created, that moments before did not and could not exist. That's the first three weeks and three minutes-ish. Now, let's get into the good stuff. So, um, Matthew chapter 16 is where we're going to begin. Because how that divine blessing would come into the world, Jesus has something very specific in mind of how that divine blessing was going to enter this earth. So, Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, now, um, real quickly, um, Caesarea Philippi, um, if you aren't real sure, it's named after someone. Any ideas? Not Philip. No, you're wrong. Er, Caesar. 
It's named after Caesar. It, it was named that. It was a city that already existed, but they named it that to pay homage to Augustus Caesar. And Augustus Caesar was the adopted son of a guy named Julius Caesar, who the Romans believed was God, or a God. And so if Julius Caesar was a God, that would make his son a son of God. And so this city was named to pay homage to Augustus Caesar. And so you got to imagine the disciples are, are walking up to this city, and this city is about 40 miles away from the north side of Sea of Galilee, where the disciples and Jesus really kind of have their base. It's about 80 miles or so from the actual city of Jerusalem. And so they're up north, and they're walking into this city, Caesarea Philippi, named after Caesar Augustus. And Jesus asked them this question. He says, Who do people say the Son of Man is? So so here's his question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Okay, going on. And they're they're all kind of commenting, you know, here's who we say you are. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am. And so you imagine this scene with these disciples walking with Jesus into this pagan city named after Caesar Augustus. And Jesus is asked, who do they say? And they're all commenting, they're all talking. And then Jesus turns and looks at them. And I imagine he gets their attention and says, no, no, listen, listen. Who do you say that I am? And to to no one's surprise, Simon Peter is the first one to pipe in. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. So, So here's Peter's confession. You are the Messiah. You are the son of God. And Jesus turns and looks, Peter, you got that one right. You're you're correct. But you're not that smart. You didn't get that on your own. My father in heaven revealed that to you. He's the one that showed you the answer to that question. And then he says this, going down to verse 18. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, so much of the conversation around this verse centers right here on what is the rock. And Catholics will say, well, the rock is Peter. And Protestants will say, well, no, no, the the confession is the rock. But for this conversation and for this message, that's kind of irrelevant. We're not even going to mess with that today. But I want to look at what I think is probably even more important. He says, on this rock, I will build my church. And it's the church that is going to be God's vessel to bring his blessing into this world. Now, if you aren't real sure historically, Jesus and his disciples were most likely speaking in Aramaic as they have this conversation. 
And Jesus tells him, I'm going to build my church. This is written down by one of the apostles, Matthew. And Matthew is writing this down in Greek. And so as Matthew is sitting here trying to write down this story of Jesus, he's trying to process in his mind and think of the very best word to translate from the Aramaic into the Greek for what Jesus says, I will build my church. And the word that he picks is a Greek word, and it was super, super common, and it's ekklesia. It, it would look like that. And it's really, really common. It's not a super religious word or anything like that. But it means this, gathering, assembly, or congregation. I'm going to build my church. Now just imagine, they're walking into this pagan city. You have these apostles walking along with Jesus. And he says, I'm going to build my gathering. My, my congregation, my assembly, my group of people who are committed to my ways. And you got to imagine, like, as one of the disciples here, you know, 40 miles from kind of your home base, just all by yourself with Jesus, kind of. Okay. So you're going to build this large group of people with us. Because Jesus, I don't know if you know, but we can't really go back to Jerusalem. In fact, the very next thing he's going to tell them is that they're going to go back to Jerusalem and he's going to be killed. We're kind of on our own. We're kind of rebels. We're kind of the outcasts. But somehow, this group of men catch a vision, a glimpse of what Jesus is talking about. Now, back in week one, we talked about translations. And maybe one of the greatest tragedies in all of the translation process happened um, probably about a thousand years ago. And it centers around this word right here, ecclesia. Because as the, go, go back, yeah, ecclesia. As the Bible was being translated into all these different languages, this word, and I, I don't know German, and so um, go ahead and go to the next word. I don't know German. I've never taken a German class. Hebrew, Greek, yes. German, no. But this word was translated and actually superimposed for ecclesia. And it simply means house of the Lord. And you think, well, okay, well, what's the big deal? Well, if you go back in history, um, in around the 1500s, a guy named William Tyndall was the very first man to ever translate the entire New Testament into English. And he believed that the Bible was actually for the people. That they should be able to have a Bible, that they didn't need a priest to read it to them. 
and tell them what it meant, that they could actually hold it and read it and learn from it and understand it. Now, if you can guess, this did not go over well. In fact, Tyndall would be strangled and burned alive at a stake for his translation. But the thing that caused the most outrage was this word. Because for centuries it had been really translated as the house of the Lord. It was this place. And so he went back to the original ecclesia. And he translated it in his New Testament congregation. And it was that word, that translation, that made the leaders, really of the Catholic Church, the most angry. And they killed him for it. Because he believed that ecclesia wasn't really about this physical location. It was about a gathering of people. It was about this congregation, this assembly. You think, okay, why does that matter? It matters because Jesus did not predict a place. Jesus predicted a people. Jesus did not predict a place. He predicted a people. And you can imagine, the the morning after the crucifixion, as all the disciples are trying to figure out, okay, so, so what now? If you were to go back and ask, okay, say, Peter, you just confessed that you believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Do you still believe that? And I'm thinking on Saturday, Peter's like, I, I don't know. That's not really how I had things pictured in my mind. And then they start to hear whispers. Whispers that the tomb was empty. And not only was the tomb empty, that some people had actually seen Jesus alive. And they had talked to him and listened to him. Hope was reborn. And this small little group of people, these disciples, catch fire. Because their hope was that Jesus was the Messiah and the Son of God, and he was killed, but now he's alive. And this hope spread throughout these followers. Because he had been telling them he was going to die and rise, and they didn't get it. But now I think they're starting to get the picture. And this becomes this church, this gathering, this set-apart people confessing Jesus is Messiah. And that they would be the ones that bring redemption and reconciliation into the world through the power of forgiveness. But understand something, that mission was not new in that moment. 
It had not changed since the very beginning as God created his divine image bearers. That you would represent me to this world. The mission has always been the same. So understand this. God does not have a mission for his church. God has a church for his mission. It would be the vessel through which his reconciliation and his healing would come into this world, that they would see everything different from everyone else. That his death and burial was not the end of the story, it was actually his coronation, becoming king. And so what does he say about this divine people? This people that would bring blessing into this world. He says that the gates of hates, read hell, death, will not overcome it. That it will stand over and above all forevermore. So why does that matter today? I think so many of us, it's so ingrained in us that this is the church. How, how many people remember this as a little, little child? Right? Everyone get them ready. Get them ready. I asked Becca, she's like, no, we don't really do that anymore because it's not great theology. I was like, that's good. Um, but we'll go ahead and do it just to make a point. You got, got it ready. If you're not participating, security, they have people not helping. I'll probably get in trouble for that. So here is the church. Here is the steeple. Open the door and see all the people. Right? Everyone remember that growing up? If you didn't grow up, that's what we did in Bible class when we were really young. And the problem is, that's terrible theology. That, that's kind of that German word, house of the Lord. Right? When it should be, and I rewrote this one, okay? Here is the church, here is the steeple, gathered inside the building full of Christ people. I'm a poet and didn't even know it, right? Like, that's what the church was supposed to be, this gathering of people. Jesus did not predict a place. He predicted a people. And so after the resurrection, Jesus takes his disciples up on this mountaintop, and he says this, all authority, and you say, okay, all authority, yes, all authority. Sin does its absolute worst to Jesus. It tortures an innocent man and kills him out of fear, pride, and prejudice. And Jesus forgives that sin, and God vindicates him and raises him from the dead. So all authority, absolutely. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, therefore based on the fact that all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
that I'm, I'm going to be there alongside of you. <clears throat> He's going to do that through his spirit. So, so understand this, that when we say church, and if you're new to this, if you're watching online, when we say church, we're not talking about a building. We're talking about a people, each and every one of us, who is now the house of God, who's a temple, that the Spirit of God lives within and empowers to do His work. You want to think about an amazing amount of power. Every single one of you here baptized into new life in Christ Jesus are filled with the power of the Spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives within every single one of us. The most powerful place in the world is supposed to be the church. So often, we don't live like it's true. So often, we let little things get in the way of community. So often, we let hurdles discourage us. If if you'll hit rewind back a year and a half, I I don't know if you heard about this or not, but there was this um, national or... I guess, worldwide pandemic. Did anyone hear about that? It was a little while ago. So if you, if you didn't watch the news or whatever, there was this nation, nationwide, worldwide pandemic. And it shut everything down. And church leaders were like, uh, what are we going to do? But here's the amazing thing. Is even though we weren't all here in the building... We still had church. Why? Because church was never about the place. It was always about the people. And we say, well, how in the world is God going to work when we can't meet together? Do you realize in the month of July, we had two people baptized into Christ here at Shiloh Road that came to us online during a pandemic. Okay? Can we get out of the habit of living in fear and discouragement and understand that what Jesus brought into this world was something that would last and something that would go on and on and on for eternity. I think Revelation says it best. My, my favorite verse in the whole Bible, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. That he is on the throne, 
And at the end of the day, his church will go on forever. And it is a group of people, not a place, a group of people committed to the way of Jesus filled with his spirit that are bringing hope and healing to this world. And it started that very moment as they came down from the mountain and they go to the upper room and they start waiting. And God's spirit fills them. And there is this power that is unleashed into the world in that moment as they march right into Jerusalem and said, you killed Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. And thousands of people decide to trust in Jesus. And then Peter and Paul, I mean Peter, John and Peter, are, are walking through the streets and there's this lame man and he heals him. And everyone can see it. And they find themselves on trial. And it seems like God would shut this thing down. But yet somehow God continues to work in this church. And it seems like it would be the beginning of the end because persecution breaks out. But this church is unstoppable. And they scatter. And it seems like the, the end of the story. And there's this guy named Stephen who's persecuted. And as they're stoning him, he's standing there before the people stoning him. He says, I see Jesus right there. And you're not going to stop me from telling this story. You're not going to stop me from talking about him. And then God gets a hold of the guy who's leading this rebellion, this guy named Saul. And he's blinded and he comes back three days later and he becomes the leader of this new church that's going into all the world. And it seems like everything the enemy could do to stop the growth and the movement of this church cannot stand against the power of the Spirit at work through the people. Understand, that did not stop here. It continues today. And, and I think if we were to be able to sit back with the Apostle Paul thousands of years ago before he started writing his letters and just say, hey, keep going in this ministry. It's going to be really fruitful because 2,000 years from now, we're going to have these perfect little Christian utopias all over the world where there's no, pro no problems, no conflict, no pain. Like That's my experience with church for the most part. Um, no, sin's still going to be a problem. But the power of the Spirit it work in the life of the church is far greater. Because today sin is still crouching at your door, desires to have you. But the church stands as the beautiful bride of Christ. His beloved people. Not his beloved building, but his beloved people. And I will tell you, the most powerful place evangelism happens is here in the context of community. It happens here within the walls of these buildings as God's people gather. Why? Because you can look all over this place and you can say, you see them right there, their marriage was hanging by a thread. And they didn't know how they were going to make it. And now they're mentoring couples who are struggling. 
And you see that guy right there, he was addicted to drugs, and his life had completely fallen apart. And yet somehow God has resurrected him and set him free. And you see that man, he was consumed by his possessions, and he could only focus on himself, but generosity is now the way he lives his life. And that person was searching for hope, and they were down and out, and they were ready to end it all, and now they have this abundant life in Christ. And we were as good as dead, but now we're fully alive, because you see these stories all over the place of God's Spirit at work in the world. And these stories are powerful. They're powerful Because they are the story of God that continues today just as it did back then. And here's the amazing part. You and I are invited to be a part of that. That God doesn't say, here, here's what I'm doing. Y'all sit over there, sit back and watch. He says, come on, come join me, because we are kicking back the kingdom of darkness with the light of the world. You and I are invited to be a part. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your divine plan. We thank you for your providence. We thank you that when we see dead ends, Father, you see new ways. Father, we're grateful that we gather here as a church, not not because of a building, but because we are the people of God. Thank you Jesus, for your love and forgiveness of us. And Father, we pray that we would bring that forgiveness that you have given so graciously into this world. We thank you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if we could help you as you follow Jesus, we would love to do that. We're going to have shepherds around the back of the auditorium. If you want to give your life to Christ, be baptized into him, come on, we'll, we'll do that right now. That's so important to us. Um, but if we can help you in any way, let us, let us know as we sing. We will.